together. So thankful you're here. One of the uh, great longings that's innate in the human heart is the desire for significance. We want our lives to be meaningful, don't we? We we want them to matter. We want to be considered important. And so this place in our hearts, this search for significance, if you will, occupies a very central place in what it means to be a human being. The question then, of course, becomes what, what causes significance or where does value come from? And the list we could come up with in terms of where people look is endless, isn't it? People look for value, significance, meaning in all kinds of endeavors, in all kinds of relationships, and in all kinds of things. Your cultural background likely plays a very significant part in where you find value, in the bent of your heart, what you naturally are drawn towards. Now, follow me closely here. If one of the greatest longings of the human heart is for significance, then wouldn't it make sense that one of the the things we would fear the most is insignificance? If, If we're hardwired to want to know that we're valuable, then the lack of value or the fear of not being valuable could certainly drive us at a motivational level in a very significant way. Perhaps some of us are afraid that we'll never truly find importance, never truly find meaning, never truly find value. It's possible that we become people who are paralyzed by a fear of insignificance and that that actually drives us to do really crazy, insane things. At the core, um, greed is a fear of insignificance. And so what we're doing in this series is we're taking each week a, a different way in which fear expresses itself and trying to analyze what the Bible says about it in a passage or two, and then invite each other, as Jesus has invited us, back into a life with him, a life where there's worth and value and significance and peace and joy, irrespective of circumstance, rooted in the work of the Spirit in our lives. It's not merely the hoarding of money and possessions. It is that... But it's more than that. At, at a deep greed is often driven by a deep-seated belief that what we have makes us significant. That if we have little, then we're actually people of little worth. Now, before we read the passage for today, I would ask you to consider praying just quietly yourself that God would give you an open mind about this. Uh, my experience has been that Very, very, very few people would say, I have a problem with greed. Very few of us would admit to a fear of insignificance that drives us to find worth in how much we make or in how much we have. Very few of us. Our quest for significance, though, can take on divine attributes when we make it the object of our worship. And so... When we fear insignificance more than we marvel at God's goodness and grace, then it has become our Savior functionally, 
not Jesus any longer. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're very thankful that you're here. We would believe as Christians that Christ, that Jesus is our King, that He's our Savior, that He's the one worthy of devoting all of life to. And so as we talk about greed, what we're doing is we're comparing the worth of money to the worth of Christ. And the two are incomparable. And yet we can trade greed for Jesus. And you may not think of that as a struggle for you, but let's pray and ask God if he would instruct us and help us to understand our hearts. So let's pray. Father, it's exceedingly difficult to see greed at work in our own lives. And so what we need is not to be convinced in and of ourselves what drives us at a motivational heart level, but to have you, through the scriptures, open up our hearts. To have you reveal to us what drives us in order that, believe it or not, Christian or not, we could come face to face with the gospel and meet the living Christ. And so to the degree that we need as individuals and as a corporate group to hear from you on this topic today, would you speak to us? Would you pull down our preconceived notions and shed light on what's inside of us? Not for morbid introspection, not for guilt, not for shame, but for finding glory and life and joy in you. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 12. Would you please turn with me there? Luke chapter 12. If you do not have a Bible, there are some at the back. At the coffee bar, you're free to get one and make that our gift to you. Luke 12. One of the best passages in the Bible on greed, I think, is here. So we'll look at it together. We're jumping in kind of midway into a book, but uh, Luke was a physician. He was a historian, and he set out to give an accurate representation of the life of Christ. And so what we're going to find is Jesus teaching publicly and somebody asking a question, and then as Jesus did most of the time, he answered a different question. Many times what we ask isn't really what we actually need to hear. That's certainly the case in Luke 12. So verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, that's Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told him a parable. So the word parable just means to throw alongside. So Jesus often used parables to say, here's a spiritual truth, but you're likely not going to receive it. So let me throw alongside that spiritual truth, a physical story that helps us get at it, that helps us the heart of a truth before your defenses. There's some of my favorite kinds of writing in the scripture. Verse 16, he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced 
plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods later for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So the story is pretty simple. There's a farmer. He does really, really, really well one year. He does so well that he has nowhere to store all of the excess. And why does he have nowhere to store it? Because he was already rich. He already had all that he needed. He didn't need that huge harvest. And so when he had the crop of a lifetime, he was faced with a choice. And it's the same choice you and I face with every credit card that we hold, with every possession that we carry, with every paycheck we receive. You can give, you can save, or you can spend. That's it. Those are your three choices. Give, save, spend. There's a place for every single one of those options. God has things to say about each of them, actually. The Bible tells us to do all three. Now, in, in this case, in the parable, uh, Jesus was speaking to people who lived in a very different kind of culture than we do. Life in the ancient world was really bound up in how the crops did. And much of that was outside of your control, right? It was left to, yeah, don't think hyper-spiritual. It was left to the weather. So if the rain came and your crops grew and the sun did not scorch them, it was going to be a great year. If drought came and you didn't save, then you would starve or have to go somewhere there was food. So people didn't have IRAs or 401Ks. There was no Medicare or Social Security. There was simply what you gathered, collected, and then could live upon. Can you see how in that environment, this guy's response would be understandable? It makes some sense, actually. Now, before you turn up your nose at him and say, just a wealthy, arrogant, rich pig, understand that this is exactly what money managers in our day tell us to do. The very best wisdom that is given to us today by people who manage money is do what this farmer did. In other words, don't increase your standard of living, set financial goals, save for retirement so that you can relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Right? Anybody that you go to that manages money, that's what they're going to tell you to do. Don't simply spend it on bigger, better, faster, newer, nicer. Instead, invest, diversify, and enjoy your life. That's the American dream. Often it's even taught in Christian circles. Now, the problem here isn't money. Money is amoral. 
The problem isn't the money. The problem is with our money, we often seek to buy what cannot be bought. And so this man, more than likely, was seeking his worth, his value, his significance in the amount of crops that he had. But no amount of money will ever satisfy the lustful desire for significance. It simply won't work. It won't make you matter. It won't produce a feeling of lasting value. Money is unable to bestow happiness and joy. As Jesus said, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, driven by a fear of insignificance, you may set consistent financial benchmarks or goals that you seek to attain with your money. I want to drive this kind of car, wear these kinds of clothes, hang out with these kinds of people, live in this kind of house, eat at this kind of restaurant, travel to this kind of place. Because when I finally hit that point, then that will mean I've arrived. But those of us in the room who have made that our pursuit, we've experienced that it doesn't work. So what happens? You just set the benchmark a little bit higher. And the weird thing is, we continue to do it over and over and over, not even realizing that that benchmark continues to change. If that's your driving motivation behind stewardship, what you'll find is you'll never reach it. And what I find really interesting about this is that we don't have a money problem. Money isn't the problem. We have a heart problem. So whether you make $13,000 this year or $30,000 or $300,000, if greed is in your heart the amount of money is inconsequential. The fear will always drive you for more. Now, Jesus uses a very, very strong word for that farmer. What did he call him? He called him a fool. None of us want to be fools. And in many ways, we would say, this guy isn't a fool. I mean, he clearly had done well. He was a smart man, worked hard. But Jesus was foolish. Why? Because you can't use money to buy what money cannot buy. That's what made him a fool. So that's the story, pretty simple. You ready to go? The last book in the Bible was written to seven churches that were scattered throughout what is modern-day Turkey. And uh, it's actually a letter, so there's lots of weird, crazy stuff in the middle. But in the beginning and in the end, it's addressed specifically to seven historical, real churches just like us. One of them was written to a church in a town called Laodicea, Laodicea. And in Revelation 3.17, it says this. For you say, so this is Jesus speaking to a group of people in a church. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Obviously, he's talking physically. You have a lot. But now he's going to turn it and speak spiritually. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Laodicea was the wealthiest town in the whole region. It would have been the wealthiest church out of all of those seven churches. It was a banking center. It had a famous medical school. They were known for their quality of wool. It was a city of wealth. But that physical wealth led them into spiritual poverty. Why? Because they trusted their money for significance. Greed was their God. So Jesus told them to buy what they most needed, which was what? Spiritual health. You cannot buy that. Only Jesus can. Now, here's the thing about greed that makes it so incredibly difficult to spot. Exceedingly difficult. Probably why not a single person has ever said to me, I battled the sin of greed. Not one. It's because there's no obvious, overt, behavioral referent. In other words, it's impossible to just look at somebody and see it. You cannot do that. Now, for example, we all know what lust looks like. If you look at someone with the desire to have sex with them, that's lust. You can actually see someone doing that. Or let's take lying. We all play games with our words, but at the end of the day, we know what truth is and we know what a lie is. You can see, you can see that. But greed is much, much, much trickier. Greed and materialism don't have an ironclad behavioral marker irrespective of context. So what might seem like greed in our culture, in other words, is not going to look like greed in another culture. Are you with me? This means yes? Good. So there's no one external behavior that invariably in every context is an indicator of greed. There's no amount of money that if you reach it, God says invariably to every single person, that's enough. That's too much. Everything else, give away. That's simply not in the scriptures. There's no standard of living at which we can say to someone, a nicer car, a bigger house, better clothes, you've crossed the line into selfishness inherently. It simply doesn't work like that. Greed and the fear of insignificance, again, is a matter of the heart. It's an attitude. It's, it's a level of motivation, not the externals of currency and possessions themselves. So this is a difficult thing. Greed can be present in the hoarding of $5, but it can also be present in the giving away of 500 in order to be seen by a person in a particular way. So let me ask you a few heart-related questions. Because if we can't just see it, then we've we got to look a little bit deeper. If you're honest with yourself, if you're really honest, do you fear 
insignificance. Do you fear not being valuable? Now, we could plug lots of things into the way that expresses itself. Today, we're talking about money, greed, possessions. But uh, if you're a woman here without a child, that very easily can become what you look to for your value, is if, if I have a kid, then that will give me worth, significance. If you're a man here and you're not married and you really like to be, there's nothing wrong with that desire at all. But if that desire becomes the quest of your heart, if that becomes the way, the means through which you find your value, then it's become your God. And there's lots of other ways in which that could express itself. But those are just a few. But let's think about money in particular. Does a desire for value drive you to study longer than is reasonable? Because you simply must get the highest grade so that you can get into the best school, graduate with honors, and get the best job. So you can make the most money. That's greed. Does... Does a passion for the attention that money will provide compel you to work hours so long that it's isolated you from meaningful relationships? If so, that's greed. If you were to display on the screens your credit card statement, would you be embarrassed? Not because you bought something immoral, but simply because of the way that money is being dispensed. The amount of it in the give, save, spend category, that's on spend. Maybe that's greed. Do you have the tendency to give little or nothing to your church as part of what God's given you? Have you found experientially that arriving at that next level financially didn't work? So you just pushed it higher. Are you generous towards yourself and stingy and suspicious of others? Those are the kinds of questions we've got to ask to get at greed. Not, does that person have more than me? Or does that person drive this? Or does that person wear that? Or does that person eat there? Those things are all contextually driven. Now, if so, if you've now been filleted open, God has a gift for you today. God's helping you see that you've been a fool. He's opening your eyes to the fact that you've been laying up treasure for yourself, believing that it would produce meaning. And it won't. So, one more question. Is there any hope? Our hope is not in giving more away and that somehow making us moral people. Our hope is in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. 
Jesus Christ is God himself. He's always existed. He had everything. All glory, all power, all honor, all joy, all goodness, all worship. Heaven itself. Constant relational love with the Father and the Spirit. Forever. And yet he became poor. You see, Jesus, God, left heaven and all of its glory for earth. He took on flesh. He became a man. He emptied himself. In humility, he lived as a Jewish man, 33 years, as one of us. But that doesn't get to the deepest part of his poverty, does it? On the cross, Jesus lost, gave up, forfeited, literally everything. He gave up his moral perfection. He gave up life itself. And most importantly, he yielded his relationship with his heavenly father. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So in other words, he was morally rich. He was perfect. And yet he willingly became poor. He took on the brokenness, the bankruptcy of sin itself. Why? So that all who believe in him could become rich. Not physically rich, of course, but spiritually abundant, spiritually overflowing with the life of God himself. Isn't that amazing? Living water. So friends, if you battle the fear of insignificance, particularly if you battle greed and you've lost that battle over and over and over and over again, there is a savior who for your sake became poor so that yet again you could be offered the opportunity to become rich. This truth is what the Bible calls the gospel. Jesus willingly gave up life so that you would be forgiven, adopted into his family, united to him. He became poor so that you could know the riches of the Father. At the end of the day, we could certainly all admit greed is a really lousy God. It takes and takes and takes and takes, promising what it cannot deliver. But Jesus isn't like that. The Father's not like that. He's ready for you. He's calling you. So once you turn from the sin and fear and greed to Him, Jesus abandoned the glories of heaven to die a sacrificial death on the cross so that through his death, you could enjoy the glories of heaven. He yielded his life so you don't have to fear the wrath of God. He chose the poverty of humanity that you might draw from the riches of deity. He descended that you might ascend. He took the form of a servant that we might have the freedom from sin. He was despised and rejected so that we could be welcomed and received. He died so that we might live. Isn't the gospel glorious? Now, what does all of that have to do with greed? What does it have to do with the fear of insignificance? Everything. Everything. Let's try to tie some of these ideas together. Luke 12, 15, look at it with me again. He said to them, take care and be on your guard. In other words, watch out. 
against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus is saying greed is hard to spot. You've got to look out for it. It sneaks up on you. Then jump down to verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Greedy, fearful people never have enough. They lay up treasures for themselves and are indifferent to others. But there is a kind of richness towards God in which we know value, peace, joy, love, meaning, irrespective of how much we have or whether we have a child or whether we're married or whether we have that degree we wanted or drive that car or live in that kind of place or can travel on vacation to that destination. Why? 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that you by his poverty might become rich. Richness towards God is the status, the position of being completely secure in Christ through all the resources the gospel provides. That's riches. And then living every day, drawing from that bank account that never runs dry, that always has more. You'll never have a bounced check from the account of Christ. Investing life, not primarily in acquiring of more possessions and more wealth, but in sacrificial, generous, radical love of God and love of people. Spiritual richness is drawing from the resources of Christ and then investing them away in the life of others. Now, let's think for a couple of minutes together about what to do with this kind of message. And I'd like to talk to two different groups of people. Uh, First, students. If you're here today and you're in junior high, high school, college, We're grateful that you're a part of the church family. Let me tell you a few things that perhaps others have not said. Even adults get this wrong. Your life is not about your accomplishments and your potential for wealth. Your parents, your teachers, your mentors, your coaches... Most definitely the media you take in are wrong. Be nice, be respectful, but don't believe it. It's a lie. Your life is about Jesus. Treasuring Him, enjoying Him, obeying Him, loving God, loving people. That's where you'll find joy. Those are the priorities worth having. Perhaps your strongest, greatest temptation no one is ever going to talk to you about is the search for value expressed in greed. Why are they not going to talk to you about it? Because many of us as adults struggle with it. And because it is literally all around us in this particular culture. You don't need a lot to be greedy. One of the things that makes that so hard. Again, 
$5 or giving away a 500 It's hard to spot. Live what may feel like a radical, crazy, otherworldly kind of life. A life of generosity. You will not regret that. Live a life rooted in Christ, not in money. Now, adults, your turn. You don't get off the hook. One of the reasons greed is so hard to spot is because we surround ourselves with people like us. So the vast majority of us study, play, live, work with people who are generally in the same tax bracket. We can't see greed because we tend to relate to people in the same kind of station in life that we're in or just a little bit higher above us. And so when we look around us at others in our general circles of influence, we can't see greed in our own hearts because we pull people around us who are like us. Your church family provides a much better context through which to live. We have members here with great wealth and members with close to nothing. There are $40,000 cars in the parking lot and there are people here who rode the bus. So a way to really be on guard against covetousness is to get deep into community in your church. Treat your brothers and sisters in Christ as brothers and sisters in Christ. And what you'll find is that you start to think about money differently. You start to notice things in your own heart that you would not have seen. And getting more invariably becomes less important because you'll see people with less who are enjoying a richer life than you are. You'll see people with less who are drawing from the riches of Christ. It'll work out that way. You'll find that you give stuff away you never dreamed you would. You welcome people in that you never dreamed you would have. And it's much, much, much better way to live. Over 1,500 years ago, a very wise pastor, a guy named Augustine, wrote, covetousness divides, but charity gathers people together. That's what we see here as a church family day in and day out. So in your gospel communities, talk openly about money. When you're going to make a big financial decision, invite your group into that decision. Share your decisions. Brothers, invite another brother to lunch this week and pay for his meal. And don't tell him before so that he'll buy the cheapest thing. (laughs) Sisters, invite somebody, another sister, to go to coffee with you and buy her $12 latte. (laughs) Don't fret about what you don't have and share what you do have. Open your home for somebody who needs somewhere to stay. Pay attention to the needs in your church. Give generously. What you'll find over time is having less because you're living life in community is actually not giving anything up, but gaining so much more. Your greed and the fear will be exposed 
And the joy of being around people who are different will cause you to draw on the riches of Christ. Because Christ, for our sake, became poor. So that through him, we might become rich. Let's pray.